This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, Kansas City Southern's plan to accept a revised $30 billion merger offer from Canadian National Railway, that would ultimately junk a deal with Canadian Pacific Railway. Kind of need a whiteboard to keep track of this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, they're competing. Really, it's all about you know connectivity with the North American market. Let's get into it. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Transport Logistics and Shipping Analyst Lee Klaskow on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Hey, Lee, good to have you here with Tim and me. So... Tell us about this. It sounds like, though, there's been some back and forth here. It's not necessarily done yet. Yeah, hi. Hi, Carol. Hi, Tim. Yeah, it's not a done deal yet. I mean, obviously, right now, Canadian National uh, is in the lead for uh, Kansas City Southern. Uh, You know, we believe that Canadian Pacific will likely try to, uh, you know, put sweeten its deal that that it currently has out there. Uh, But we don't think that, you know, it necessarily will try to uh, meet or exceed Canadian Nationals deal. They might um, be hoping that Kansas City Southern might see a transaction between CP and Kansas City Southern um, more uh, agreeable to the the regulators. The STB uh, kind of approved the voting trust for Canadian Pacific. They have not yet done that for Canadian National. That will just make a transaction a lot more easier to get done. Uh, you know, Canadian Pacific has until next Friday, the 21st, to counter. Um, and, you know, once they do, uh, who knows, maybe Canadian National can even sweeten its deal even more um, because at the end of the day, you know, it looks like it Kansas or Kansas City Southern is an asset that both of these want and um, both are, seem to be willing to pay for. Well, let's talk about that because here we have potentially, to some extent, it's already started a bidding war for, for this asset from Kansas City Southern. Talk about the importance of this railway and, and, and why these two firms are, are battling it out for control of it. Yeah, well, you know, the the regulatory hurdles for rail mergers are pretty high. Uh, Kansas City Southern in 2001 um, got a, uh, a reprieve, if you will, for that high regulatory hurdle. So first off, Kansas City Southern is an easier uh, target to acquire if anyone wants to acquire it. Also, you know, Kansas City Southern has a great network that connects the United States and Mexico. Uh, cross-border uh, is expected to grow. It's expected to outpace the overall economy. Economy, you know, you're having a lot more manufacturers take a closer look at Mexico for the U.S. markets, um, and, and so that's making Mexico an attractive uh, place to play. And if you look even longer term, you know, as Mexico tries to you know improve its economy, grows out its middle class, mm. you know, their economy should be doing well as well. So, you know, the the real prize here is probably at least in Canadian National and Canadian Pacific Eye is that north to south network, uh, and that really uh, is. Be, is kind of like a, a super highway for the automotive industry uh, as components are brought in into Mexico, then they're assembled in Mexico and then shipped back out for consumption in the United States. What I love about this story, Tim and I were just talking about it uh, in connection uh, with the bridge that was uh, blocking in Mississippi, um, because, you know, that, that there were some problems cracking the bridge and how, you know, moving stuff around, especially for the ag market, you know, was pretty much stopped. And it's just a reminder, Lee, that, you know, 
railways, uh, you know, waterways. It sounds so old economy, yet that's still how a lot of things move around in this country. Yeah, I mean, we haven't gotten autonomous trucks right or, um, you know, flying cars right yet. So, you know, these kind of uh, old world, uh, I, I guess, economy um, industries are, are really key for the overall economy uh, because without them, you know, even as we saw the pipeline, the colonial pipeline being shut down, it, mm-hmm. can, it can really muck things up in the supply chain and really ruin people's lives. I mean, um, you know, truckers, uh, you know, bring the goods to stores that we all consume on a day-to-day basis. Well, what does that say to investors who I think were often so wooed by high tech and, you know, the big you know, Uber tech companies that provide so much momentum for the financial markets, you know, this is your area. And like I said, in many ways, it's old economy. But Lee, from an investor perspective or investment perspective, how do investors need to be looking at it? Because it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. No. And, you know, the the rail industry, at least from my perspective, is extremely sexy. I mean, it has operating margins of over 40. (laughs) Oh, my God. My favorite comment of the week. The rail industry, in your opinion, is sexy. Get t-shirts made right now, Lee. (laughs) You're in the right job, Lee. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, they, they have operating margins of, of over 40%. Uh, and that's, Huge. that's pretty compelling. I mean, yes, it is a capital-intensive business. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that could go wrong because it's, an, uh, you know, as a lot of rail operators like to say, it's an outside sport. Um, but, but the reality is it generates gobs of cash, uh, and it's a really attractive business. And then you have businesses like like uh, FedEx and UPS. I mean, they are kind of in the sweet spot of what's going yeah. on in the world today. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the pandemic obviously was a terrible thing, but what it did do is it brought e-commerce penetration three or five years ahead of where it should be, and that just means you know increased demand for the like the FedEx and UPS, and you know, and they're also benefiting from a recovering economy where there's business to business or B to C volumes are increasing, and those volumes have great margins relative to the uh, the volume that, yeah. that they do when they deliver a package to your home. Hey, five seconds, ten seconds. Who do you think Kansas City is going to ex- end up with? Another railroad. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's sexy. <laughs> Lee Glasgow, you have a great weekend. Thanks so much for joining us. Lee Glasgow, he's Senior Transport Logistics and Shipping Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from BI Headquarters in Princeton, well, New Jersey. I love talking about this kind of stuff. I do too. I mean, what's so remarkable is we talk so much about disruption and like yeah. new technology, but if you think about it at the core, this is like century-old technology. It's right. still huge. Exactly. It's still so vital, so important. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of what keeps the economy going yeah. and moving around. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So this is among our most read stories. In fact, it's the third most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. It's about a day in the life of Wall Street, and it really, Tim, shows how New York City is kind of on the cusp of a comeback. It certainly feels it as you walk around the city. It, it does. It feels it. And, and, and indeed, that's what Max Abelson and Amanda Gordon and so many of our colleagues found uh, when they chronicled the day in the life of Wall Street earlier this week. Max Abelson is finance reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Max, this is just a fantastic piece. It's, it's kind of like a profile of, 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 of downtown. It's a profile of, of Wall Street. It's a profile of the, the figures and the characters uh, from barbers to coffee carts to executives at some of the biggest companies. Um, take us into the day of a life of Wall Street and why it's showing uh, it's at the cusp of a comeback. Well, not only am I glad, Tim, that, that you really like it, and same goes for you too, Carol, and, and I'm glad that all of our, our readers, of course, like it, but 
I'm glad that you sort of see it as a profile of the city itself. What a, what a fun way of describing it. The, the way that, that I think about it uh, is that what we did, and by we, I mean not just Amanda Gordon, uh, who's great, but Dan Taub, our editor, and colleagues like Sridhar and my colleague Max Reyes uh, and Missy, we, did, we had a really big team, and that enabled us to kind of take hour-by-hour snapshot. So I was able to point my camera, you know, for example, at John Corzine, who's uh, after MF Global blew up, of course, the, the former New Jersey governor and senator and head of Goldman Sachs is now trying to run a hedge fund. And he sort of talked about his, his solitude for nine months, but he now has a trader with him, and he's just about to go, uh, to, to go have his first meeting in person. And then I went to the opening of Power Breakfast and... You know, my colleagues like uh, Amanda spoke with, you know, not just at the high of Wall Street, like John Gray at Blackstone, but Amanda also talked to, you know, a woman who, ha- you know, gets $3 tips to shine shoes in Grand Central. And I think, Tim, that together, what it adds up to is a, is a glimpse of a very complicated industry at a really interesting moment when, as, as we say, it feels like we're on the cusp of a renewal, sort of the lip of something very, very new. What's really wonderful too, Max, is it harkens back to the early days of the pandemic when we talked about the shutdown, particularly in a major city like New York City, where, yep, Wall Street was shut down and a lot of people could easily work at home, but the coffee carts, the shoe shine spots, those weren't individuals who could make up work by working from home. They were impacted in a big way. And it just reminds us about kind of the trickle down or the trickle up or the supply chain that feeds into Wall Street. Carol, the thing that I think about the most as a reporter who, you know, might be really as Wall Street is that in some ways Wall Street is an ecosystem onto mm-hmm. itself. And, you know, it, it's a, but, but that means, you know, it's a, a big one. It's an all-encompassing system. By and large, though, the biggest companies on Wall Street, the giants that we cover on, on the finance team here at Bloomberg News, had an incredible year. And what I mean is mm-hmm. in 2020, they saw remarkable profits thanks to, you know, government support and, and monster trading. And then in early 2021, they broke those new records. So the reality is Wall Street, you know, despite all these changes and despite all this uncertainty and despite the diversity of what it means to be in the financial services industry, it, it's been a remarkable year. I think I'm not sure anyone quite realized just how, just how lucrative the, the past year was going to be, even if people were, were doing it from home. Well, that's so interesting because it has been so lucrative. The question is, how do they entice workers to actually get back in when they've been so successful from from working from home? So what are these companies doing right now to get, look, for lack of a better term, butts back in seats on the trading desk at the office? I would say, you know, it's too hard to pick one favorite individual moment. You know, I had a blast with you and Relly, you know, at Michael's, which is a treat to get to go to uh, as a reporter. But I would say maybe the most interesting thing I saw was a CEO a CEO, Tim, a porter who runs Jopwell, um, you know, he said to me, holding his little one-year-old baby, Mia, look, I don't think I can ever go back to working in an office for five days a week. Wow. You know, if, if, if big banks, if big banks, he said, want their, um, want their employees to come back, force, force them to do it. And this is a guy, by the way, who, who used to work at Goldman Sachs. Porter said to me, um, they're going to have to give a really, really good reason about why they should. Because it's been a lucrative year from home. You know, he's got to watch his daughter grow up. And, you know, he, he thinks that banks are going to lose talent if they just force, uh, if they force their employees to come back without giving them a really gripping and convincing reason. No, I think of the guy over Janice, right, who took over for Bill Gross, who's 44, killer spot. It's like the spot yeah. you want. And he's like, nope, I'm Want to go down. to my daughter's lacrosse games. Exactly. And there's yes. a bit of a rethink. 
Especially, right, you know, when they can max still, as you said, Wall Street had a banner year. It's, I mean, the, the numbers uh, are absolutely remarkable. Now, listen, it may be that Wall Street just sat back and, you know, of course, these are smart people working hard. But, right. you know, you might be able to say that the Federal Reserve, you, you know, made it, made it relatively easy for them over the past year and that Wall Street may now start to worry about what right. the rest of 2021 will look like. And, you know, yeah. that, that may get them extra eager to get butts back into seats. It's another great read from Max Abelson. Max, thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Finance reporter at Bloomberg News joining us on the phone in New York City. Check it out at Bloomberg.com. It's Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Tim Senevec in the Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. Some breaking news coming across the Bloomberg terminal right now. The Trudeau government has begun talks on a border reopening plan. Once again, the Trudeau government has begun talks on a border reopening plan. Well, let's get right into it in the latest on COVID. Like we do each and every Friday, we check in with Dr. Ian Lustbader, who's clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us right now on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lustbader, how are you doing? Well, very well, Tim. Happy Friday. Hope all is well with you. Yeah, happy Friday to you, too. I, I, I want to talk about what the CDC said yesterday, because it gives me this idea that we're kind of all going to be remember this moment when we learn that the CDC said, if you've been vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask when you're inside. It caught me by surprise, given how conservative the CDC has been throughout the pandemic. What was your reaction? Uh, it's certainly welcome news. And I think the CDC, unfortunately, has been a little confusing in their guidelines, uh, kind of uh, waffling a little bit back and forth. But overall, uh, this is welcome news, expected news. You know, we've really known for months that vaccinated people, as per their study and other studies, about 95% really are certainly safe outdoors. So when you're walking the city streets and you see everyone with masks, I, I think that's good behavior, but really not necessary if people mm. are certainly um, vaccinated and, and being outside is very safe. And that we've really known that and had that data for many months. So uh, it's about time they came up with that. And indoors uh, as well for people who are vaccinated, it certainly appears very safe, and that we've known for a while. So I'm glad they've uh, taken the temperature down a bit, so to speak, uh, and reassured people. There are still patients who call who have yet to be vaccinated or patients who've had uh, COVID itself and have not yet been vaccinated, and they don't know what to do. And that's sort of another story, uh, something to talk about. But certainly if you've been vaccinated, not 100%, we still see some people who've had uh, the vaccines who who get COVID, usually right. a very mild case. But for the majority of people, this is welcome news overdue, and they should feel uh, happy and comfortable uh, venturing out and uh, enjoying a more normal life. Yeah, welcome news. And, and also, it just I think I'm wondering if you think it helps push the Biden administration toward its goal of getting 70 percent of Americans having at least one shot by the 4th of July, because to, to me, it really represented the idea that vaccines work. Once you get this thing, you can go back to some level of normalcy. I think Americans are competitive. And I think uh, now that they see their neighbors uh, who've been vaccinated are venturing out without masks and feel more confident, uh, I think they will be motivated, the, the ones who have not been vaccinated right. yet, to do that. Uh, you know, there's still some vaccine hesitancy. You know, we're up to about 154 million Americans, about 46, 47 percent 
um, vaccinated, but I think the number is actually higher for the people who've had COVID who've yet to be vaccinated. I think they have antibodies. So I think America is overall a much safer place, uh, but we still have a little more to go. Hey, uh, Dr. Lesbader, you did mention uh, the idea that some people who have been vaccinated have still gotten COVID and some are asymptomatic. And I want to bring this up because we learned yesterday that vaccinated Yankees players have tested positive for COVID and drawn a probe. Um, They've had eight players and staff members test positive for coronavirus this week, despite being vaccinated. That's led to quarantines and drawing an investigation by the state health department. How could you explain this? So we know that vaccines work by stimulating antibodies. And there are some patients, uh, that 95% number effectiveness with the mRNA vaccines, Moderna and and Pfizer, really, uh, those are the numbers. It's unclear why some people don't either form antibodies or form antibodies, but they're not quite as effective or maybe in high a number. And we see that with a flu shot. We see that with really a whole variety of vaccines that overall they are safe. They reduce the incidence of disease, not 100 percent. And we have to distinguish patients who are tested positive. In other words, you may have a nasal swab Mm. and have minimal symptoms. So I think the vaccines are working. And I think we can say that uh, the incidence of severe disease is dramatically reduced, uh, whether it's J&J or any of the vaccines. And I think the Yankees, who are aggressively tested, may have a positive nasal swab, but that doesn't really mean that they are going to get sick or certainly very sick. So I think it's interesting why so many Yankees, it's, it's hard to know. Obviously, one of the players in the locker room had COVID or carried it and did transmit it to other players. But the way the vaccine works is that you form antibodies so that if you're exposed to a virus, you have a very quick response. You know, you don't have to wait, get sick, have your own body form antibodies. They're there waiting to attack the virus. So um, it doesn't worry me per se. It sort of fits with what we know about how vaccines work. And uh, they're not 100 percent, but they are highly, highly effective in reducing severe disease. I don't think we feel any of the people the Yankees or other people who've gotten COVID after vaccines have really had a very bad uh, outcome. And that's really what we're trying to do. Right. We're we're trying to prevent people from getting really sick and going to the hospital and, of course, ultimately dying. So many people have had that outcome over the last 14 months. Dr. Lusbader, uh, does it at all concern you about the message that it sends, though, about the efficacy of the vaccine? If people see this headline and say, wait a second, these people were vaccinated, they still got COVID. Yes, I think for, for the, those who are vaccine hesitant, they will take this as, see, I was right. Why yeah. bother getting the vaccine? Because I get it anyway. So I have patients like that. And, and I really try and explain the science to them, explain the facts to them, which, which is that the vaccine will be protective. It's not 100% protective. And as for me, I would prefer, I don't care if I get exposed to the virus, if I'm 95% or more reassured of not dying from it. So that uh, I'll take those numbers. Let's get right back to it with Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from Long Island. Dr. Lusbader, I want to talk specifically about kids because uh, last week, kids and vaccines, because since last we spoke uh, last week, regulators had not yet authorized the use of the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine for kids ages 12 to 15. Uh, How much of a game changer is this? 
You know, I think uh, it's important really to vaccinate everyone. We don't know really how long, as Doug and you intelligently raised, you raised a lot of good questions. We don't really know how long the immunity will last, but certainly we think it lasts for at least six months. Um, kids certainly, the good news is uh, that they have a very low uh, uh, mortality and morbidity from this. Kids do very well with this. Totally different than the Spanish flu in 1918, where young people had a much higher death rate. Here, older people and the majority of older people in the U.S. are vaccinated. So kids definitely, um, we need to, you know, ensure safety. But um, uh, kids really of all ages probably will be at some point vaccinated. I think Hmm. it makes sense. Obviously not mandatory, but I think it would be smart to do that. And just to address the, you know, the question about the mRNA vaccines, which, again, we said in that study were 96 percent effective. I don't want to discourage people from taking J&J. It's easy. It's one shot. You don't have to go back. Remember, that original data was 100 percent protection against hospitalizations and death. So, yes, you may. It's not 95 percent effective at getting uh, covid but it does what we wanted to do, which is to prevent hospitalization. So I think uh, any any vaccine available is appropriate. There's not one necessarily better than another, or or you need to pick one or the other. You said that at some point, any any age will be eligible to receive the vaccine. We know that tests are happening for the mRNA vaccines with children as young as two at this point. What's a realistic way for us to think about a timeline there? You know, that's hard to know. Uh, Obviously, we want uh, safety data, and we're not going to have years of safety data. But I think it uh, would make sense to to be offering that. It's not a panic because most kids, as we said, do very well. They can harbor the virus. They certainly can get sick from COVID, and they can certainly transmit it. So your concern about bringing your two-year-old to elderly people or people who are not vaccinated, I think it makes sense. But I think it is safe for people who are vaccinated to have grandkids and and young kids around, even though they're not vaccinated. So I think that that's reasonable. One other thing that Doug was talking about just a few minutes ago was the idea of of variants and to what extent these vaccines protect against them. We learned earlier this week that the World Health Organization uh, is reclassifying that highly contagious COVID variant. It's a triple mutant one that's spreading in India. They're calling this a variant of concern. what did that mean to you when you heard that from the World Health Organization? I think that's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, what's happening in India is uh, a, a humanitarian crisis. I think the numbers are going to be really uh, astronomical, I'm afraid, um, mm. because of a variety of factors, proximity, underlying health, underlying issues like diabetes, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, that really has not come here. But but I don't think we really know how effective our vaccines are against that. And hopefully uh, the vaccine manufacturers are working on um, uh, vaccines to that triple mutant variant because it is uh, more contagious. It does seem more virulent. Uh, and I think there will be some breakthrough. In other words, I don't think our vaccines, although they may reduce the severity of the disease, it's not going to be as effective as the uh, as to what the vaccines were originally designed for. So I think we need to work on a vaccine for some of those variants. And I don't think we've seen the end of the story with what's happening in India by any stretch. Well, it's interesting, though, because at the same time, 
here it feels like for many people, especially with the CDC news yesterday, that we are really getting close to the other side of this pandemic. We see states moving to fully reopen here in New York City next week. Um, that's the plan, at least. Uh, we still, I think, we'll have a lot of people stay home and, and, and work from home. But a lot of the regulations and rules that we've lived with for the past 14 months are, are going to be lifted. How do you see Americans dealing with that? You know, I think America is very uh, fortunate, and hopefully those variants will not come here or not until we have some vaccines. I do think businesses need to figure out masks and, yeah. and, and that whole thing. And I think, I think if people are worried, it's okay to wear a mask socially and otherwise. The masks are not completely protective. You should get vaccines, hopefully encourage people to do that. But certainly if you're in between two vaccines or you've had a vaccine and you're not waiting the two weeks, I think it would be prudent to wear a mask whether it's indoors or maybe even outdoors. But, but the reality is the vaccines are, are very yeah. effective and should make everyone feel uh, much more comfortable. Hey, Dr. Lesbader, just in 20 seconds, um, is there anything that you're not going to do uh, when things are fully reopened? Is there anything that you're still cautious about? No, I feel very comfortable and go out without uh, a mask now and uh, am comfortable indoors. When I'm seeing patients yeah. in my office and we're close, under six feet, I still am going to wear a surgical mask. And I think that's not going to change. Yeah, and indeed, that's what the CDC says still to do in those environments. A mask is still to be worn. Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. Thanks so much for joining us. We got much more Bloomberg on the other side. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, it is. We are just over 10 minutes away from the close of this wild week. You heard the numbers from Doug Krisner right there. As the week stands, the Dow set to close down just about one percentage point. The S&P 500 off about 1.3% and the Nasdaq off by about 2.3%. Let's get right to it with Abe Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Abe, what a difference between Monday and Tuesday and what we saw Thursday and today. Yeah, uh, what a difference between, I mean, you can extend that uh, comparison to now versus this time last year. And, hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, there's been well, a reversal of sorts in many different ways. And uh, I think the biggest reversal really has been in people's attitudes about, um, you know, what, what's consumers, what are consumers going to be doing over the next year or so? And that's kind of driving some of this volatility back and forth. So, so what do you make of the sell-off that we saw early in the week, specifically with, with tech stocks, and, and how the narrative was that it was really tied to inflation? What, what changed later in the week? Now we see the you know, tech and energy rallying. Um, yeah, this day-to-day stuff is um, probably I can make up all kinds of stuff that, that will seem smart <laughs> in, you know, in the short term, but it, it's, it's really just driven by um, uh, just you know, emotions and sentiment on a daily basis. Are you not reading too much into the inflation figures that we got earlier this week that really spooked equity investors? Uh, well, I'm probably reading the same thing everybody else is reading. I just, I guess, maybe I was expecting it, and so it's not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, the the big debate really is: is this a transitory thing, as Powell wants it to be, or is there something more persistent to um, to it? And I, I think the bond market is basically saying. Hey, there's some um, cyclical pickup and everything um, compounded by these, sh- these sporadic shortages, you know, across the supply chains that are pushing up um, the uh, you know current inflation numbers. But at the same time, I think if you have a view of what 30-year inflation might be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's reasonable to kind of like look through the next six months, nine months to try to figure out 
what are the real driving forces of secular either inflation or deflation? And from a longer term perspective, um, you know, not much has really changed. Um, you know, as far as uh, the factors that would drive uh, disinflation over time, but but who knows? I, you know, anything can happen. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about where you're finding opportunities right now, because I know that's something you're focused on at Centerstone Investors is opportunities in small to mid-sized companies outside of the United States as investors really have moved to big tech stocks and, and large markets like China. Where are you seeing opportunity? Yeah. So basically anything that's uh, related to, uh, um, you know, industrial activity or just kind of like the old economy, uh, that stuff got uh, really creamed um, starting in 2018 and culminating with a, a great washout in, in uh, you know last year. Uh, the declines were significant enough that even um, you know a doubling in some of the stock prices still re- leaves plenty of room to the upside if the um, this economic recovery is uh, more sustainable. If it's just a snapback, you know, dead cat bounce or whatever, um, then you know maybe these things are not. There's not much more upside, but you know, if uh, from in Centerstone, we're kind of trying to think if we look at the world from a long-term frame of mind, and things to be look to be you know recovering. uh, One of the missing links, really, for um, much of the rest of the world, was the fiscal policy turning positive as it has in in Europe, and you're seeing all kinds of policy actually turn more pro-growth in Europe underneath the surface, including with a lot of the conditions that are attached to the new. Um, you know, spent the stimulus plans that the Germans okayed. And, you know, you, you see a lot of structural reforms that are being demanded, and, you know, countries like Italy, Spain, Greece are coming up with very interesting structural uh, changes to enhance their competitiveness and make them, you know, uh, kind of more interesting for investment uh, destination as an investment destination. You, you know, in like the next month or two, it doesn't really matter. Right. But over time, these are things that can set up a trend uh, and to, can create what seems to be a transitory sort of maybe, you know, uh, re, just kind of well, bounce back from last year. It can set it into a motion into a much longer lasting trend. Okay, okay so just for context, give us give us the time horizon that you have at, at Centerstone. What are the expectations your investors have? Uh, well, what are the expectations investors yeah. have? Well, what is, how, how, are you do, so how do you explain those have, expectations to, to customers, to your yeah. clients? So typically a business... A value investor is buying a business that, you know, sometimes the prospects are not so they're they're bleak, as Marty Whitman used to call it. And um, and cycles do not just turn on a dime and they don't just um, recover on a dime. It does take time. And we often ask patients from our own investors of three to five years. Um, in reality, there are companies that, you know, recover and then continue to grow and not be hold on to it for you know, decades uh, but you know, the typical value investor says, hey, three to five years is like an appropriate time frame. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the companies that you specifically are looking at. Um, Fraport, for example, what's appealing to you about that? Uh, you know, I, I like airports. Um, they're, they're, uh, the assets themselves are very long-lived. Um, you know, Fraport, the airport itself, Frankfurt Airport operator Fraport, has been in existence for a long time. The airport's, um, you know, are, it's basically real estate. And just like any other Class A real estate, the, the intrinsic value of it doesn't really change year to year. To year. Um, in other words, the value of that asset is dependent on the cash flow stream over 50 to 100 years. And so uh, sentiment, however, does drive the stock price up and down beyond its intrinsic values. And, of course, as an airport uh, operator, it, it did uh, suffer um, 
traffic-wise, and in, in, investors punished the stock, but the stock went from 130. It's intrinsic value as well north of that. Even at 60, this is an example. Like the stock has gone from 30 to 60, but it's still cheap, right? And um, and so our our funds, our Centerstone's funds, are like a gold mine. And we're just they're filled with companies like this that have been kind of depressed for a long enough time that the recovery should not just be a few months. It should last multiple years. Um, and then if you layer on top some of the structural changes I was talking about, you know, you have the ingredients for at least a long-lasting, um, you know, performance pro- uh, positive performance profile for the funds. Well, what about Perigo in Italy? Or Ireland, excuse me, in Ireland. Oh, P- Perigo. Oh, so that's, you know, it's Irish domicile. It's actually an American, mostly an American company. They have... Uh, they had this tax dispute in Ireland with the ta- Irish uh, tax authority over, uh, I'm not going to go into the details. And so people are very focused on that for a good reason. But um, And then they're, they sort of forget that the core business of Perigo, which is basically selling generic uh, you know, vitamins, cold medicines, things like that in CVS, but they're also the number one supplier on Amazon, um, the uh, market position they have is solid. Mm. And uh, there's a, there's some kind of, you know, the short, again, back to the short-term versus long-term thing. People are disappointed by the current results because uh, they just don't have the patience to wait. Um, and the reason it's not a, it shouldn't be that, it shouldn't require that much patience. The, the, the numbers right. were weak in their genetics business because the cold season, like no one got the flu, right? <laughs> What's one <laughs> so, thing when we're wearing masks all the time, right? <laughs> Ave Deshpande is founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Advisors. Uh, sorry to cut you short a little bit, Ave. We are running out of time as we do get to the market's close. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.